HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Aaron Bresnitz. We are so excited to be sitting down with Jackie Summers, the founder of Sorel Liqueur. He shares with us his family's story, his relationship with the incredibly delicious red drink, and gives us some recipes for us to enjoy this summer. It's a fantastic journey of perseverance and following your passion. We hope that you enjoy it. And then we dig into the archives for an electro dance performance from Glacio, perfect for Sunday or whenever you're listening. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. I'll fight the wars outside and pray Make no mistake My heart can't beat without you I'll shine a light inside my face Oh, 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 
Jackie, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Really appreciate it. Man, it's good to see you. How are you feeling today? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm, I know it's hot in Brooklyn, but I got to say, uh, few things are better than a summer in the city, in New York and Brooklyn. How's your summer been? How's everything going? They make songs about summer in the city for a reason. It's always a good time. It's always a good time. Now, you're um, New York, multi-generational, born and bred. Your grandparents came to Harlem from Barbados, right? So my mother's parents came from Barbados, and my father's parents came from St. Kitts Nevis, and all four of them landed in Harlem, New York in 1920. I mean, what a... What a time to be in Harlem. What brought them to the city? How did they find themselves um, in America? What did they wind up settling and doing? What brought them to America was a lack of opportunity for the skills that they possessed in the Caribbean. And what brought them to Harlem specifically was the fact that they were moving to a country that was segregated. And the only place they were welcome really was Harlem, New York. Hmm. Um, how much tradition did they bring with them? Because, you know, my grandparents emigrated from Europe after World War II, and they essentially just found other pockets of Hungarians and, and, and Polish people and sort of carried on a life in just a different country. How much of it was of your grandparents bringing those Caribbean traditions with them, or was it trying to adapt to America? Oh, it was 100% our traditions. My grandfather, my mother's side, was a chef, mm. uh, classically trained. So I learned all about my heritage through food as a child. I mean, that's pretty amazing, especially, I mean, even today, um, Bahan cooking isn't super, I mean, there's pockets of it in America, but it's not widely well known. But to grow up with that must have felt really special. It connected me to myself in a way few other things can. I remember being a child, maybe five or six years old, during Labor Day in the summertime every year, they have this thing that they call a West Indian Day Parade. Oh, and yeah. they down Eastern Parkway, and there's two million people of Caribbean descent out in the streets. And there's music, and there's floats, and there's costumes, and there's dancing. But the food, oh my mm-hmm. goodness, is amazing. And I remember being five years old and eating beef patties and jerk chicken and roti and peas and rice and watching all this stuff down with a non-alcoholic version of sorrel and thinking to myself, this is this is me. This is who I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've had the, the pleasure of getting to go to that parade a couple of times. And when you get off the train – the first thing that hits you is that smell of all the food oh. that's cooking and all the spices in the air and you start hearing the music. It is, it's a, if you live in New York and you've never been, I mean, it's, it's a special, it's a very special tradition. There's tremendous pride, uh, those that, that day and the, and the day before it's a great yeah. celebration. So your uh, grandfather was a classically trained chef. How did he get into cooking? Where did he learn? I cannot tell you that story. He died before I was born, unfortunately. Mm. But I know that he taught my mother how to cook, and my mother taught me. So the tradition has been passed on generationally. What was important about that? Why was it important to carry on those traditions, the culinary traditions, from generation to generation? Two reasons. Uh, The first was there is a way of retaining your cultural identity that is 
established in no in no really better way than through the food. Uh, food will tell you who you are. It will tell you where you come from. The other thing that was really important is making sure that the traditions that were established uh, in the Caribbean got passed down so people understood how important it was that these factors that shaped our culture, being the, the spices that were traded, the mm. slaves that were brought to those islands and traded, the indigenous people, the cooking techniques, all of it was important to understand who you are and where you came from. It's so interesting with food because it can connect you to a time and place that you no longer have physical access to. It can transport you in many ways. Um, I mean, when's the first time you made it back to the Caribbean to experience it, even though you had grown up with it and the traditions and all the flavors and things like that. And when you went back, did you immediately feel that, that connection? Oh, I completely feel the connection every single time I go. And the great part about New York city is there are still pockets of places where mm -hmm. that connection is still very, very strong and you can go and really see the pride that people take. I always feel the Caribbean is sort of under underrepresented in the amount of influence it played in mm -hmm. American cuisine. Uh, we are just now getting to a point where this culture is, this country is willing to acknowledge the contributions of African Americans to American cuisine. But 95% of the African Americans who are in this country came through the Caribbean. So mm. it is neither a combination of uh, indigenous cooking techniques or African spices or some mix thereof that is what becomes what we think of as traditional African-American cuisine. I mean, when you think about who was in the kitchen when America was forming its cuisine, a lot of it was black chefs and people who were cooking food for white people. Cuisine and cocktail culture, actually. Yeah. I've had this conversation with Dave Wondrich several times. Oh, yeah. Both cocktail culture, cocktail culture and dive bar culture were things that were started in African-American traditions. If, you, if a plantation owner, for example, said, sure. let me make you a cocktail, he wasn't actually making the cocktail himself. No, no he was not. Washington said, I have a distillery. He wasn't actually distilling himself. He had people that were doing that that he owned. Right. And with your grandfather in these fine dining kitchens, but coming from a Caribbean background, how much was he influencing the food in these restaurants that, let's say, the wealthy white elite was eating at? Well, it was tricky because as all people at that time coming through Ellis Island, he was an undocumented immigrant. And sure. when he got to this country, he realized uh, sort of the hard way that it sort of didn't make a difference if he was an immigrant. Black was black and you were going to be treated a particular way. Mm -hmm. So he struggled a bit. He really did. Hmm. I mean, it's really tough, especially when you go to a community that embraces – people from other parts of the world and your grandparents and you and living in Harlem and things like that. And even Brooklyn to a point, how did he balance that? He had this great skill. He had this great knowledge. He had this great tradition. And yet at times he had to put that away and couldn't express it to a larger group of people. My grandfather had a saying that was repeated to us from the time I can remember. He would say, 
Good, better, best, never let it rest till your good is better and your better is best. And he made sure that no matter what job he had, he had to figure out how to provide for his family. So he always gave his best no matter what the situation was. Um, I imagine that you carry that with you today, that mindset. I, I do the best I can. It's a heavy responsibility. It is a heavy responsibility. Um, now, with your long family tradition of, of food and drink, were you drawn to cooking or, or bartending or any hospitality professionally at a young age? Or w- was there that push in the same way you know, I felt from my parents and my grandparents who came from a different country in America that said, we don't want you in this industry. We want, we want you to go out and do something different. Actually, I was not joined to it in any way. And before I launched my liquor brand, I will admit that I never worked in hospitality or liquor in any way. I've never bartended. It's one of the reasons I've got so much respect for the people that do. It's an honorable tradition. But did you have a passion for it? Did you did you love food? Did you love drink? You know, I think that people can still love something even if they don't work in it, although – you know, that sort of gets, uh, you know, people always like, well, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, but people still have passions for things outside of what they do. Oh, love cooking, love drink, love playing in the kitchen. Uh, never considered it as a profession. Uh, and the folks who say that if you love what you do, you, you'll never work a day in your life, haven't tried it. <laughs> <laughs> I have found that when I have worked at my passion, I've I've never worked more in my life. Absolutely. When you do the thing you love, you will work harder than you ever have. And that's okay because it's not a question of whether or not you are working more or less. It's a question of do you love what you do? I love it. Well, listen, let's take a quick musical break. And we come back. I want to hear about Sorrel Liquor. I want to talk about Red Drink and talk about the journeys of your company. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Darling, I was your safety home. There was no Beg for me back, no, cause you always want what you cannot have. You push me away just to beg for me back, and darling, I'm here.
Back to Snacky Tunes. We are chatting with Jackie Summers, the founder of Sorel Liquor. And we were talking a bit about Caribbean food and drink traditions. And one of the most famous drinking or drinks, drinking traditions, is red drink. But most people may not be familiar with it. Can you tell us the story behind red drink and what it culturally means to people? So you can go back thousands of years and find Africans making tea from hibiscus flowers. Mm. They knew hibiscus was a powerful medicinal plant. It's full of antioxidants, full of antimicrobials. It's a natural antifungal. It's an anti-inflammatory. It's a natural aphrodisiac. Mm -hmm. And they would make this tea, which is this bright, brilliant ruby red color. And it became part of their ceremony and their tradition in all things. This is how they celebrated. And then around the 1400s, the transatlantic slave trade starts and bodies and spices are stolen Mm -hmm. from the continent of Africa and moved to the Caribbean where they are traded in ports. But the knowledge of what this red flower did literally was transported alongside bodies in the bottom of ships Hmm. so the flower takes physical roots in the caribbean and the people who know how to use it are there in the caribbean as well so they continue to make this drink to remind them of home it becomes a symbol of joy and perseverance it's important to remember that there were no written recipes at the time because the people who were making this weren't allowed to read or write. It was literally illegal and they could be killed for it. So traditions were passed on orally. You would watch your mother or your grandmother make it, but you never actually wrote down what the ingredients were, what the amounts were that went into this. It ends up, of course, in the United States as the Caribbean was just a transfer point for spices and for labor into the U.S., and the tradition carried. So it might be, it would not be unusual to go to a barbecue where you see African-Americans arguing over whether or not red is a flavor. It's because you have this epigenetic memory of the red drink. And, and it's interesting because we're talking about people where you, there was a real attempt to strip away their culture. They sure. took people's names. They took their religions. They broke up families. They did everything they could to try to rob them of their identity. And somehow this drink remained. So it's an important cultural identifier in the Afro-Caribbean diaspora. Wow. It uh, speaks to the power of how food and drink and tradition and history can really stay with people despite all the best efforts to strip people of, of those connections. Yes. 
Absolutely. Do you remember the first time you you had this drink? Do you remember uh, the first experience with it? I must have been five years old, like we were talking about earlier on the mm. streets of Eastern Parkway uh, uh, for a Caribbean for for West Indian Day parade, and I don't. I cannot remember being less interested in the floats, <laughs> in the music, in the dancing. I just wanted to stuff my face with all of that good food and wash it down with non-alcoholic sorrel. So I had been eating and drinking this way since I was a little child. I mean, that's amazing. And also good to know that there's versions of this drink for all ages. Yes. However, my family came from Barbados, so there was rum in pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah, you have a cold rum. You have a toothache rum. You break your leg rum. rum. Rum was a cure-all. So, look, it's one thing to have a lifelong affinity and be drawn to this drink. It's quite another thing to want to make your own version of it and get into production, especially for a drink that was not well-known or as well known in America, what got you into making it? What drew you to starting this business? Oh, I had a cancer scare. Oh, there you go. Uh, I was making a version of what became Sorel in my kitchen for friends and family for almost 20 years, just serving it at parties and barbecues. Love it. 12 years ago, my doctor found a tumor inside my spine the size of a golf ball. Oh, my God. He said you have a 95% chance of death and a 50% chance of paralysis if you live. You should probably organize your paperwork. I lived. Yay! Yay. But the experience will adjust your perspective permanently. I had 25 years invested in corporate America. I had a good job uh, making a six-figure salary as a director, but what I really wanted to do is day drink. I want to be around cool people in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week. I wanted to talk about things that matter over good food and good drinks. And when I couldn't think who was going to pay me to enjoy this lifestyle, I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll launch a liquor brand. How hard can it be? How hard was it? <laughs> it's actually close to impossible. <laughs> what I what I didn't know and what I couldn't have known at the time is when I got my license to make liquor, my DSP in 2012, I was the only black person in America with a license to make liquor. Turns hmm. out I'm probably the first legal licensed black distiller. Wow. I mean, you do hear that the liquor and liquor production industry is very white dominated. I didn't expect it to be so heavily dominated that you were the first and possibly still only. There's a handful of black distillers in the country now. There's an an active movement to not just educate, but empower financially people who have been doing this again for centuries. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in 2012, I was Tigger. (laughs) I was the only one. So... You get the brand, you get it out there. What's the response? Well, let's start with the bartender. Because if the bartenders and the bar community don't like it, it's not going to get anywhere. What was the response to this new type of uh, of drink? Oh, the response, uh, was, the response was overwhelmingly positive. 
Uh, the New York Times called it Christmas in a Bottle. Mm. Star Magazine put it on the celebrity page, called it Caribbean Sunshine in a Bottle. We received five stars from Paul Packard Spirit Journal, five plus from Simon Difford's uh, uh, Across the Pond in Difford's Guide. The reception critically could not have been better. It was but, just fantastically received. And beyond critical, culturally, or just anecdotally, like what did people – did people understand, one, what the drink represented, and two, were people to be able to have it who only had ever had it because someone like you made it at a, a, you know, a, a, a backyard barbecue or there was a, a family celebration and someone like would whip up a batch of it? What was it like to be able to get this very uh, culturally important drink off the shelf and, and just have it to have in your house? Well, the interesting thing is people weren't as concerned with the cultural relevance when the brand launched. It was just delicious. Mm. This is the interesting thing about Sorel is it's CRT in a bottle. It, people will drink it because it's delicious. And then they'll go out and they'll want to find out more about it. And then you get the story. But the story is inextricably tied to the beverage. I mean, that's very few drinks have that. Very few drinks. I feel like a lot of drinks or a lot of food brands or things like that are looking for that sort of um, authenticity or that real connection to people and things like that. And you actually have the history there of what that drink means to you and your family and your community. The interesting part is the Afro-Caribbean diaspora is so vast and so wide that it had to be of a particular quality or they would all be calling out evil on my name right now. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I know that you alluded to uh, it not being an easy business. and And I was reading about your journey and you have this thing called the pause, which happened around Hurricane Sandy, which for anyone who was living in New York at the time uh, was absolutely devastating, especially took a lot of uh, manufacturers and things like that. What happened to you when Sandy hit? What happened to the business? Well, that was only the first pause. Oh, that was only the first pause. Okay. Well, hit me with a couple of pauses. Six months in, after having launched in May of 2012, Hurricane Sandy destroyed my distillery. Wow. Six feet of water in the basement, six feet, five feet on the first floor, all the commodities, all the equipment trashed. Uh, FEMA didn't pay a dime. Uh, Thanks, FEMA. The FBA did not pay one dime. Insurance didn't pay a dime. Built, put the entire thing back together with the help of community and volition and every last dime I had and relaunched in 2013 uh, to, to, to fair success, I'd say. Hmm. Signed a national deal to take the brand across the country in 2015. That reneged. Got a second deal, negotiated the con- to contract in 2016, worth, mil- worth, again, millions of dollars. That also reneged. So took a second pause to find the right financial partner. Presented this to pretty much all of the big brands around the country. And all of them... Agreed it was a great brand with a great tread record and wished me the best of luck. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Uh, Fawn Weaver and Uncle Marist uh, became our financial partner in 2021. And it's just been 
a great marriage of values and a great marriage of connection and people who are trying to accomplish the same goals that we are. So in that sense, it was absolutely worth the wait to find the right people to pair up with. Now, Fawn Weaver is such an interesting person and the Uncle Nearest Foundation is absolutely incredible. For people who aren't familiar with what she's doing, what the fund is about, can you explain? The short version is Fawn Weaver is a New York Times bestselling author who discovered in 2015 that the person who taught Jack Daniels how to make Mm -hmm. whiskey was an enslaved African. So she took it upon herself to tell the story to the world. And one of the first things that she did was gather the descendants of this man whose name was Nearest Green and ask them what they wanted. Her original intent was to write a book. And the descendants said, we love the idea of a book, but we always really felt that what Nearest deserved was his own whiskey on shelves right Mm -hmm. next to Jack. And so Fawn accepted the challenge and put out not just the most what became the most awarded whiskey in American history, but the fastest growing whiskey brand in American history. And when she did this, she had this sort of epiphany. She said, it cannot be just me. There has mm. to be some systemic reason why other brands aren't having the success that I'm having. And she took it upon herself to establish a $50 million fund wow. to help uh, brands that are owned by people of color to see if they if, if her, to, 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 to experiment and see whether or not her success can be repeated. And the interesting thing about that from my perspective is Uncle Nearest is the most awarded whiskey uh, of the last three years by far. And in the first six months of this year, Sorrel became by far the most awarded liqueur in the category, hands down bar none. Congratulations. Congratulations. That's amazing. So, So we are very much trying to follow in the very August footsteps of Uncle Nearest. So, look, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, Summer's here, Sorel's on my shelf, I know I can have it neat, I know I can have it on ice, but what drink are you making right now with, with Sorel? Hibiscus Mule. Go on, what's this in it? Super easy. Two fingers of, you, you get a nice tall glass, fill it with ice, two fingers yep. of Sorel, three fingers of ginger beer, spritz of lime juice, ready to go. There we go, all day, right? Backyard on the porch, on the steps, wherever you can sip and drink. It's the most refreshing thing. And it's interesting because hibiscus drinks are consumed in tropical places all around the world. If you go to Africa, they would call it bisop. If you went Mm. to Mexico, they would call it Jamaica. Hibiscus is super refreshing on hot days. Oh, I love it. I love it. So you found a lot of success. You've won a lot of awards. What does the future look like? Does it feel like you're just not just getting started, but you know it's like the overnight success takes ten years type of mantra, and you've you know you're at your ten year mark in many ways. Um, what's next? What's the future look like? What do you hope to to see uh, Sorel do with you and 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 the community in the world? So I'm a practicing Taoist, and part of my Spiritual tradition is always to feel like I'm beginning. And yes, I very do much feel like I'm at the very beginning of this. And I want to feel that every day when I wake up, 
every day I wanted to feel like it's the first day I'm doing this. It gives me the most opportunity to learn and to grow and to not get too full of myself and my accomplishments. I always want to feel like today is the very first day. As far as what's next, the interesting thing for me is Sorel is proof of concept. It was always meant to be tip of the spear in that it sat in the Caribbean for centuries before I put it into a bottle. And now it's received all of this critical acclaim and consumers are loving it. My thought, though, has always been how many other beverages are out there like this? Mm. Centuries of cultural significance that's super important to a particular community, but generally unknown outside of that community. That's just waiting for someone to figure out how to make it shelf stable, market it, and find the, the right people from the community to bring on board so that it isn't a culturally appropriated. I think that there's at least another half dozen beverages in my future like Sorel. I'm never going to make a gin, a rum, a vodka, whiskey, tequila, mezcal. God bless the folks who are doing that and doing it well. I'm going to introduce brands to the categories of one and introduce, hopefully, brand new flavors to the world. I love it. Well, listen, Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. If people want to look at recipes, find out where they can get the, the, the liqueur, where can they go? How can they follow along with your adventures? The website is SorelOfficial.com, and that's the IG as well, SorelOfficial, S-O-R-E-L. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a great summer. Enjoy enjoy the city for the both of us. We have another song from the archives and a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hello, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Glacio here from Queens, New York. Welcome. Welcome to the show and thank you for reaching out to us. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. I've been a fan for a while and happy to be on. Oh, well, we are are happy to hear from you and talk to you about the upcoming record and your creative process. Um, You know, speaking of the creative process, the last few months and especially the few weeks have been a really unique time in America and the world. Um, Something that obviously we will never forget and hopefully we'll never live through again. Um, But as an artist, how have you processed everything and what has inspired you and of what's inspired you? Have you put that into your art? Yeah. So I think, um, when it comes to like how I absorb the world around me and try to reproduce it in a way that's artistic, I I think I usually need some time to uh, process like all of us do and to think of ways that talk about the subject in a way that's tasteful and then also true to my identity. Um, I think that's super, super important. I'm always afraid. I've always been very nervous about exploiting um, situations for artistic gain, um, such as when when COVID nineteen started um, rising in March. Um, I was on hype machine and I literally saw a band called COVID nineteen, um, and you know that that being the extreme version of doing something the wrong way. So I, I definitely like taking time to to think and pause and and document how it affects me, which feels genuine as, and I think there are lots of different people that could relate to that experience. Um, and just being honest about how you, how you live through things will, will eventually be relatable to someone. So I'm sort of really still absorbing everything. And I don't really, I'm curious to know how this impacts music that people release next year. Um, if we're, if we come out of this and it was a sort of momentary chapter Will things will will music scenes evolve that are 
sort of fun and chaotic. Like I, I like to, I sometimes think about the New York music scene after nine 11, um, from what I've read about it and the kinds of bands that erupted out of the electro clash scene. And, um, I don't know if you've read meet me in the bathroom, but it is, um, no, I've read it, but I was also there. Uh, oh, a little yeah, bit fair. older. Fair so, um, yeah, it was such a visceral reaction of what was going on. And you could see that people had processed that and turned that into art. And, you know, with uh, COVID-19 and now the Black Lives Matter protests, I think you're going to see a lot more um, explosive and politically driven and art that I think you're going to get away from maybe a little bit of the pop stuff and see more stuff that has thought and purpose behind it. Yeah. Something that's less escape, less escapist um, than maybe previous, previous moments I'm imagining as well. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because in digging into your music and, and the writings on your music of what you talked about it is that you really think that the type of music, this uh, electric music, electronic music you make is a really good type of music for storytelling, which when you think of electronic music or especially where it's sort of gone in the last few years, it's not really a place you go for stories. But why do you feel that the music you make and, and the, this, this bedrock of, of, of sounds is really good for telling a narrative. I think that the way electronic music has been, has, has been um, consumed is all, it's been very visceral for the most part. And I think there's something fun there. There's, there's a lot of room to play. There's some, there's something fun you can do by introducing something viscerally, but then adding layers to it that, from a cerebral level, um, you know, you respond to differently. I think I've always just, I, I grew up as a singer songwriter, um, before I started producing. And, um, I was, you know, when I was 16, I was going to the coffee houses and the open mics and, um, just like listening to every Paul Simon solo record, like back to front. And I think when I started getting into dance music, I always had this image of, um, if like Neil Young made a record on the moon, which he kind of, which he kind of did with Transformer Man, but something, something that could have been a bit more like something a bit more so sweeter. I like the idea of making electronic music that feels sweet and lullaby like, and, and, um, that's always been of uh, interest to me. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that answers the question, but it definitely like there's imagery that I, that I've always thought of when I, think about making the music I made. Well, to tie it back to what we talked about in the, the, the first section, there sometimes could be a vapidness with electronic music where it is just tracing a trend and not really saying anything or distilling complex emotions and thoughts yeah. into one or two repetitive lines um, whose ultimate goal may not be the actual spreading of story or personality or or thought. Um, but, you know, you've, you have a lot of introspective lyrics. And I think when you tie those with the, the genre of music, it does create something new. And I think something that's probably going to be an easier shift in processing the type of current events into your art than maybe what some other people might be dealing with, with the music they make. Yeah. 
I, I, I think so too. I've, I've always liked the irony of like making something that was meant for a roof deck part, like a rooftop party, but having something that, that, that lyrically suggests introspection and introspective, um, an introspective experience. It's always been, I, I've always liked that sort of juxtaposition. And, um, that's sort of, yeah, what drives me with this project at least. I love it. Well, listen, let's, um, let's get into a song. Uh, I believe weight of the world part two is your first track. Yes, that's right. Um, and what's the story behind it? I wrote this, I be- it was 2017 and I think it was, um, late, late summer. I was basically wanting to talk about things that were, the world feel, felt like a, a huge mess. Um, back then, which was like compared to now, I mean, it's, it's, it's silly to say, but it was, it, I basically wanted to write a song that was a social commentary on political events and things around me. And I felt really overwhelmed by the news. Um, so that was way to the world too. Awesome. Well, here we go. Glacio live on snacky tunes on heritage radio network.org. second of midnight then I'm gone I'm gone when my heart beats on the plate and I'm gone where the river burns through the lake when I fall I hope I fall wide awake and I know I'll be making all the same mistakes without you Without you Without you Without you Visions are louder on the cruise Faithful companions always lose Lost in a father's dream can't seem to make up my mind now, and it's so hard to choose. The frame of the world burns on and on, combusting and breathing simple songs with natural remedies and songs. You hear them howling at midnight, and they won't be up for long. I'm gone when my heart beats. And I'm gone where the river burns through the lake. When I fall, I hope. 
Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Glacio on with us. Loved that first track that you played. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for playing it. Um, I want to talk about the fact that you were born in the UAE and you eventually wound up in Central California. Because I'm always interested about American culture and American music and how it's perceived by the rest of the world, but more importantly, how it's then filtered into different singers, songwriters, and artists, because you mentioned uh, that as a teenager, you started making your own music. So how did you see that music, that culture, and, and how did it inspire you? Yeah. So basically um, we were a small community of expats when we were living there and the when my parents moved there in the late eighties and it was, uh, my mom's from Dublin and she, she was, she's the musical person in the family. She, she went to school and uh, she was a choral singer at Trinity college. And she sang like backups with Enya and stuff like that with her wow. choir. So it was like, I remember being born and then on all the family videos, I'm like crawling to Enya, which is pretty intense. <laughs> and uh, honestly, it's great music to learn how to walk to. I mean, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. That I, not that I remember, but I, from, from this age looking back. Um, so everything that I 
it consumed musically was through her and through like just a lot of UK new wave stuff, like Prefab Sprout, um, New Order, Enya, and like Sting. Um, so basically, that was that was there wasn't there wasn't much music. There was no music scene in in the UAE ever um, when I was there, at least that I knew of. But when I grew older, I you know Virgin Megastore opened, and that mm. was like you know I'd go and buy CDs. Um, and that was the only place to go buy music that I, that I, that I knew of. And, um, because of that, you basically got the best of the best. You don't really, you wouldn't find, you wouldn't even find like Yola Tango over there or someone that like, you wouldn't find much indie music. So it would be a lot of right. older established singer songwriters or 50 cent and Shania Twain. Um, sure. so my, like my middle, my elementary school experience was soundtracked by a lot of that, but then Basically, I before I moved, I was becoming a huge Paul Simon fan and Neil Young fan, and I, that was basically my gateway. Um, and Pet Sounds, it's funny, it's just weird to think I bought Pet Sounds in the Middle East because hmm. um, I associate the Beach Boys so much with sand dunes, <laughs> which is, I guess, mm. not very far, not far off from the beach, but it's a different biome. So it's like it's a different, um, a different one. sand vibe, if you will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there, um, the, the problem with, I mean, I'm, I, I haven't been back to the United Arab Emirates in years. And I think a lot of people that grew up there could say the same thing. It, there's nothing really homey about, um, growing up there because everything changes, everyone moves away and people are there pretty much temporarily, um, like we were. And because of that, it just feels, I mean, I, I don't mean to be insulting to anyone that's listening, but. At least from my perspective, it felt vapid for 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 the for the for the for when I was there. In the sense that I go, I think a top man is over my childhood bedroom right now, like a top shop. Mm. Um, I think I, I walked into the mall and I, I I tried to figure out where my bed was, and I I did it as a joke, but I thought it was kind of funny. I like walked into top man, yeah, in the men's section. <laughs> and that's that's where he used to sleep right near the uh the blazers and the sweaters yeah exactly yeah <laughs> the discount rack yeah um now i know that you currently uh live in queens and the siren song of new york pulled you there in the late or the early 2000 aughts 2011 if i remember correctly yeah um you know, obviously, if you're into music, New York is a great place to go. So I assume that that's one of the reasons why that that drew you there. But what drew you to New York culturally, and um, you know, what drew you to Queens eventually? I um, I basically was trying to. I was uh, when I was in high school in California. I was looking into schools, and I wanted to go. I wanted to get into Berkeley, Boston, originally, like anyone in a, in a, that wants to pursue music. I didn't get in there, but I got into a school at uh, NYU um, that uh, Clive Davis opened up like um, back in the mid two thousands or so. And it was a music production program. And it also gave you classes on business and like journalism and stuff like that. And it seemed really exciting. And um, uh, that was, that was obviously one reason it was the only school I got into. And then, New York in itself has just always been, I mean, it's huge. Like it's always inspired. One of the first movies I ever remember seeing was escape from New York. And I mean, I think 
Um, a lot of the music I, I grew up listening to came out of New York. And I'm not really a fan of LA and cars and traffic. I'm, I like the ability to find a bottle of water quickly if I need one. Um, I think it's, I think it's a helpful city for that. Um, and that was basically it. I, um, I absolutely love the city and it's, you know, it's, it's been heartbreaking even now leaving it just, it always hurts me to leave, you know? I love it. I mean, if, if you ever live in New York, you know, it's, you're, I find that as a, it's such an inspiring city. It is. And it's just every diff, there are just so many different neighborhoods that feel similar, but just have a completely different tone. And uh, I mean, there's, I just absolutely, I love everything. I love having a, like, I even love having a crisis in New York. Like I'd, <laughs> I would not, I would not want to have the same crisis anywhere else. Um, like I should be careful with that language, but yeah, like a, a micro crisis, like micro crisis, um, something that, you know, wouldn't bother you the next day, but that temporarily upsets you. It's a, it's a wonderful city. I, I just love, I'm a big walker as well. And I, I write a lot of the music I write when I'm walking. So um, I don't think I could do that as much in a car. I actually, I have really bad ideas when I'm in a car. Um, <laughs> everything is just really daft. So. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear another track. I believe the next one is almost forgot how to play guitar. What is the story behind that one? I am. Um, well, my dad, um, like many parents, like just doesn't like my newer music as much as my older music. Um, because there's a sentimental value to what I first came up with when I was 16 and also taste. Um, so he was like, you should start playing guitar more. Cause that was my first instrument. Um, and he's, and he says that in a sweet way. Um, it's not like in a, in a degrading way. And I've all, and I almost did. And I felt like I almost did forget how to play guitar. And it was sort of, the song's on my upcoming album. It hasn't actually been released yet. Um, and I think I, I was right. I wrote it lying down and it was the first song I had written on a guitar in, in about seven years. Um, yeah. And I, and I, it has a little like waltzy pattern to it that, uh, that's different from the rest of the songs in the album. Well, here we go. Palacio on Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org. Oh, <laughs> 
Amazing. Thank you so much for that track. And uh, I know you mentioned it's on your upcoming album, but I wanted to ask you, given everything that's going on in the world right now, what is your thought about releasing an album that you've written either, I assume, before or finishing up before um, the pandemic and everything that's been going on with Black Lives Matters in the last few weeks? And do you re-examine what you wrote? Or do you think about putting out the album? What's your mindset? Yeah, that's a really good question. I was just on the phone with um, several people working with me on the release and talking about it and trying to figure out a, a plan. I, I, I felt I felt both through the um, the Black Lives La- the Black Lives Matter movement in the past two weeks and and um, and COVID a little uneasy about self promoting music, and I'm uh, and lots of my friends feel the same way. Um, so I wrote the album a year and a half ago and started writing it and has, you know, started planning the re- the release dates back in October. Um, my view is, my view is I'm still, still deciding. I, there's a chance that I might not release the album. I mean, there's a chance I might push it back a little bit. And if not, I'm definitely, if I, if I'm going to release it, there's definitely going to be, um, a charitable aspect to the album. There are definitely organizations that I'm looking at that I would want to be putting the money directly towards to help, to help in any way I can with what's going on. There, there are lots of different things. I, I just, I, I do believe that black voices should be the focal point um, right now and should be having full um, access to social media space to get the message out. Um, And that's something that I'm trying to, trying to weigh the options here to make sure that I, I don't fill the ether with with noise that can come out at a later time. Mm. No, I think that stepping aside to make space for voices is an important thought to have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talk about this album and how it's about um, accepting fragility and that seems like a really important message for people to consider today about uh, how things can be fragile and how your mindset or your person might be fragile. Um, but what does it mean to you? Yeah. So when I started writing the album, the songs were very much about um, a disintegrating friendship, the like basically the loss of a soulmate and learning to be individual and independent again, which doesn't really have a direct relationship with what's happening in the world right now. That being said, a lot of people that I've sent it to have found their own meaning in it and find the songs to be sort of soulful and almost a little spiritual. That's not my words. That's other people's, other people's language. And they've convinced me that maybe it's not a bad thing to have out in the world. It's a positive piece of music. Um, It's not something that's, insensitive to the situations going on around. And I, there's definitely, I would definitely be careful about the kind of music I'd be releasing um, given the context of what's going on. Yes, I agree. Well, I appreciate you making the time for us and thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts, especially as we all sort of um, process our own thoughts. And I appreciate you, you sharing some of them with us. If people want to follow along or check you out online, where can they go? They can find me at Glacio Music, one word. Um, 
and then on Spotify, Apple Music, or their, anywhere they like to listen to music the most. So Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, we have one last song from you, Make No Mistake. Um, what's the story behind this one? Um, I wrote this song basically in the, at the end of 2018 when I was my mental health wasn't at its best and I was just having issues leaving the house and, you know, day to day tasks were just kind of at not, not easier than they used to be. And this came out, um, this has been the latest single. It came out two weeks ago and it, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't suspend the release, but it took place, um, right before the murder of George Floyd. So I haven't really been promoting this one. Um, but it was just a very strange time as well to be the lyrics sort of also reflect um, weirdly kind of reflect the situation with COVID and the world outside as well. Um, so this, this was sort of an awkward time to accidentally have this come out um, around then, but um, it's a long, it's a long song. It's the longest, it's like the danciest song on the album. I think. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time and sharing your music with us. Here we go. Make no mistake on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We will see you next time. I'll fight the wars outside and pray. Make no mistake. My heart can't beat without you. I'll shine a light inside my face. No.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Snacky tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.